Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malaman. I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. People often associate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, with its outer manifestations, fasting and spending hours in synagogue. But above all else, Yom Kippur is the Jewish holiday that challenges each of us to be accountable in our lives and in our actions, and to consider deeply from whom we need to seek forgiveness and who's asking the same from us. All relationships depend on forgiveness. People hurt each other no matter how much they love one another, and often we're hurt by those we love the most. No friendships or marriages or partnerships would last if forgiveness were not activated to compensate for our frailties, our flaws, and our mistakes. But are there acts that are too difficult to forgive, including infidelity? Is atonement possible for such betrayals? Is there such a thing as the unforgivable? And if you've hurt someone, do you get to the place where you're able to forgive yourself? How so? I'm Elliot Malamud, and this is Crossing the Sea, my series on Judaism and mental health. In today's special Yom Kippur episode, We'll ask a number of guests to talk about their experience with being hurt or hurting others and how they now think about forgiveness and atonement. How, in our deepest relationships, can we forge ahead from pain towards healing, from sadness to renewal? And as you listen to this podcast, I'd like you to think of a relationship in your life that needs mending but could be fixable, a difficult emotional situation that might need forgiveness to move forward. Someone who has considered these issues and actually transformed how she views them is Lisa Morrison, who's worked for many years as a Senior Vice President of Philanthropy and Capital Development at the UJ Federation of Toronto. Lisa spoke honestly and thoughtfully about the challenges of forgiveness in her own life. I have been in a situation, many situations, but I'm thinking of one in particular, so I'll focus on that, where I felt deeply hurt. And what are the elements for me? I guess what I would say is digging into my own self and kind of going through my own life experience and realizing that I've hurt other people too, that I'm terribly flawed. Also thinking about the cycle of life and that people often continue patterns and things that happen to them. And I've been able to kind of step back and say, I prefer to have this person in my life and I'm going to accept some very deep hurt and flaws because I don't think this person literally set out to hurt me, but I don't think this person could help her himself. No self-awareness, living with their own issues, their own problems, and I was kind of a result of their stuff. So for me, I guess, I haven't thought about it in this way, did someone set out to hurt me? Or was that person recklessly or whatever living their life, not able to handle their own emotions, anger, whatever it is, history, and I got hurt along the way. So I guess that would be it. And I, I guess in this particular situation, I came to the conclusion that this person did not intentionally set out to hurt me. And I actually think the person hurt themselves more. I really do. Sometimes I sit back and say, that person has to live with her slash himself. And I'm actually freer than that person. It actually makes a great deal of sense. And I think that you're Spot on. I mean, I also feel that it's not like they've got your name on their dartboard and they want to hurt you. I think that what happens is that all their emotional issues, which have not been processed, leak out and you happen to be in the way and they leak out on you and, and other people. But I wanted to ask you a follow-up to that. Given what you said, they didn't mean to hurt you, but they hurt you is a condition for you of any kind of reconciliation that they have to apologize. Or are you willing just to let it go without any reciprocity from the other side? The particular person I'm focusing on, I don't want an apology. Why? Because I don't think the person understands themselves well enough to 
really understand what the apology means. And so I don't want it. I, I've chosen to move forward and I don't, I don't want to dwell in that with that person because I don't, I don't want to go down that route because that's their need. It's not what I need. So that's a really interesting point. You want authenticity in the apology, which I assume means that when you have somebody apologize to you, you don't just want a, a kind of Sorry. apology. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you want them to know what they did. See, I call that validation. I think that most human beings don't want an apology. They want validation. And validation would be not the, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm sorry, which is just a way of pushing off the other person. They want you to say, I realize what I did. I realize the effect on you. You're not crazy. So you're validating the fact that the reason that the, the hurt that they feel is legitimate and you're validating their feelings. And I think that's actually what everybody wants. But as you say, it's hard to get. And you're articulating that if you don't get something like that, it's probably not just worth the kind of pro forma apology that you would get. So I'm going to add to that, because as you're saying that, what I really want is the person not to continue any of those behaviors. I don't want any of that hurt to continue. So that's saying I'm saying something even a little separately. I want to see it in actions. You know, it's just words. I'm sorry. It, it doesn't have to just be words. And sometimes it's really authentic and it, it, it's, it's heartfelt. But if you're really sorry, don't do it. Has anybody ever crossed a line with you where you say, I'm sorry, that's unforgivable. I, I can't be around you anymore. I don't think so. And, I, and, I've, and of course, I read about horrible things. The Holocaust, I read about slavery in America. I haven't experienced anything like that. I can't tell you what Lisa Morrison would do or feel in that kind of situation, right? I can only tell you in my life, and I, I don't know that I've ever been in a situation where I felt someone was completely not to be forgiven. And that may just be my nature, right? I, I don't, I, I just wouldn't know. I haven't been tested enough. I can imagine a situation, though. I mean, really evil. And just saying, I'm going to move on with my life. I don't have to forgive you. I'm getting out of this. The situations I'm talking about with you are people I still have an interface with. So I have to deal with it. But if I can take myself out of something where I feel there's like tremendous evil happening, I don't feel like I would have to. You just want to withdraw at that point. There's even a form of forgiveness that's similar to that. It's kind of the ancient Greek school of Stoics, kind of Stoic forgiveness, which is you just don't even want to deal with a person anymore. So you just say, fine, it's okay. I forgive you. It's kind of like I call it the fender bender forgiveness. Somebody taps your bumper, you get out of the car, you look at it, no big deal. You just say, fine, go away. We're not calling the police, insurance, stuff like that. That's kind of like Stoic forgiveness. The reason it works is because you're never going to see them again. So you don't have to worry about it. They're not in your life. You can just let them go. It's hard to do with your, your, you know, your parents or your in-laws or your kids because you're around each other. So it's harder to, to extricate. But I have done that. I have sucked it up and, and said, I forgive you for something because I literally just wanted to move on. And I knew the person needed that. And I decided to be the bigger person. But I'm not sure that's what you're talking about in terms of the Stoics. It's everything. You know, in other words, what you're articulating is there's no one brand of forgiveness. Yeah. There's different kinds of forgiveness with, with different situations because you have different needs with different people. The way you want forgiveness from your partner is not the way you want forgiveness if you tap somebody's fender. So we have to apply kind of the right thing. Like, I don't need to be validated by the car, the guy in the car accident. I just need to either move on or, you know, deal with it as it, as it requires. So. I think that for some situations, you are looking for just extrication. You just want to no. get out of there. I have to say, Elliot, that I think self-forgiveness is probably the hardest for me. So sometimes I think that the Catholics are really lucky that they get to just go and, you know, repent and be absolved. Because, like, I don't know who's supposed to absolve us, right? You, sp you need to forgive yourself for certain things. And I haven't done anything. I mean, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't done anything. But I've done a few things in my life that I probably haven't told anybody about that I'm not proud of, that I feel really bad about. And they come up for me sometimes during the high holidays. Most of the time I say, Lisa, enough already. That's a lot of years ago. We've, we've dealt with this, Lisa, me, myself, and I, we've dealt with this. But that's a hard one. Those are hard ones. I think you're actually getting something very deep, which is that for Jews, sometimes the process of being absolved feels harder because our God concept is so invisible, so ineffable. And I think I've actually talked to you about this before, 
that when I started teaching Christian students in university, they would be bewildered by the Jewish God concept, in some ways just the way I was bewildered by their Jesus concept. Because to them, why create a religion with God in it if God is not accessible? So I would say, you know, God is accessible. He's just invisible. And they'd look at me like curiously, like, come on, man, like, how can you access something that's not there, that that's invisible? And in some ways, Jews do have this extra burden of trying to feel clean in front of a being that you don't even know exists and you certainly can't feel tangibly or empirically. And so, as you say, that throws a lot of the burden back onto you. I do want to say, however, that I don't think just going to the confessional box leads to to necessarily self-forgiveness. I've never been in the confessional box, but I think if you're hard on yourself, somebody just saying you're okay doesn't cut it. So I'm not sure that's a... That's a way out. I wanted to ask you what you think can help a person in self-forgiving. So for me, it's really allowing myself to acknowledge that I'm a human being and that human beings are tremendously flawed, imperfect. And I have these positive talks with myself, like, what about all the great things that you've done? And what about all the good? And that often works. So you balance out your picture. In other words, part of self-forgiveness is creating a more realistic picture of the human being. Because, you know, when you do feel bad about yourself, it tends to cloud everything over. I'm just, I'm just a bum. I'm, I'm just, everything's bad. And you're out of balance at that point. So I don't think the positivity is just a kind of hope propaganda talk. I think it's actually balancing out the picture. Yeah, I do. I, I agree with you. I mean, like there's somebody in high school I did something to that I feel really badly about. And all these years I thought, do I call that person? Do I like rewrite their understanding of their of their youth? And what kind of bad are we talking I, about? It not no. Somebody else would be like, really? But it's me. That's okay. Okay. Um, but but it, it's it's not a good thing. I'm going to take it to the grave. And I've really thought a lot about it. And maybe it's a cop out because I'm not going to call this person. I thought about it for years. I'm not going to call this person because then I'm really messing with them too in terms of like the way they saw everything. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, Do you think they experienced it as a hurt and they think about it for years later? Or? No, because the person didn't know about it. Rabinit Bacha Hefter, founder of the Women's Beit Midrash in Efrat, Israel, offered a sharp and humorous insight into the whole business of letting go and forgiving. After I asked her how she's able to do that, even if the person who hurt her is clueless about what they did, what's her secret? I got older and I, and I wanted to be more whole, happy human being. But I think it's more than that. I think, uh, Elliot, what I think it comes down to really coming to recognize that we all have blind spots. And it's much easier for us to see somebody else's blind spot than it is to see our own blind spot. It's, un- it's unbelievable how easy it is for us to see other people's blind spots and how much we really don't see our own. And I think as we get older, we realize that we really, I'm not a perfect parent. I remember I I have six uh, almost adult children. And I remember really, I was a perfect parent before I had children. And I wanted, you know, you wake up every day when you're a parent and you want to be a perfect parent. You want to be a good parent and you make mistakes every day. So I think part of it is acknowledging and accepting your own limitations and When that happens, then you're able to begin to realize in a very, very deep inner place that other people have blind spots that they just, they don't. So I think at a certain point, you realize you can spend the rest of your life being angry or being resentful or somehow keeping, hacking away, hoping that somehow they're going to understand, or you can really just let it go. How do you let it go? You know, that's a, you make an internal shift with yourself. And it takes a certain amount of, I think, inner, deep inner work, certain meditative practices to come to a, a deeper connection with yourself, or with your own, I would say, shorish clean, the on the root, the root core of who you are. And you attach yourself to that place. And you know that everybody else has that place too. Often the problem is that we treat relationships as a zero-sum game. Somebody must be right and somebody must be wrong. And if you think you're in the right, then you may spend a lot of time, even a lifetime, waiting for that other person to admit they were wrong and apologize to you. The psychologist Robert Caron, the award-winning author of The Forgiving Self, says that you have to begin with communicating the hurt and go from there. But if you get stuck in what he calls trying to win, then the road ahead will be very difficult. He was adamant about the mistake that happens 
when people wait around for the other person to do the confessing as the guilty one. But by the same token, Dr. Karen believes that there is a timing to forgiveness, and it can't be forced or imposed. There can't be a repair unless there's first acknowledgement of hurt and sometimes of anger, and then the possibility of repair comes in. And it varies a lot. There's no formula for this, but I think in my case, growing up in my family, repair was not a big issue. If you didn't win the battle, you walked away feeling bad about yourself and resentful toward the other person, and maybe toward your parents, whatever the, whatever the culprit was. But repair, forgiveness is an aspect of repair. It's also an aspect of love. It's like you don't really want to be separated from the people you love because they hurt you. You want to get it over with. You want to move on. You want to believe this is not fundamental in their attitude toward you, but that this is, you know, something that happens in relationships. People hurt each other, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes thinking they have a good cause. But it does, But if you stay in a resentful place, you're going to live an unhappy life in your relationships. Robert, if it's the case, and I think that it is, that as you say, forgiveness allows for reconciliation with the people you love that you want to be close to, then why do you think it is that people find it so difficult then to say to the person, you know, you really hurt me? Often they kind of sit on that, they seethe silently, and they don't communicate. Why do you think that is? It's a good question. I think a lot of us are trained not intentionally, but just by what we pick up in our relationships in our early family life, to react with anger, and if that doesn't work, to move on to resentment, simmering, kind of frozen anger. But the idea that one can talk about hurt is less common in a lot of families. I mean, my son used to say to me when he was little, Daddy, you hurt my feelings. And a friend of mine witnessed this, and he thought it was a riot. He hadn't heard a kid talk this way before. But to me, it was precious, because... And enabled us to repair. I could apologize because he let me know. Can I just ask you about the term you use? Because that intrigues me. What does it mean to win in that situation? What does it mean to win in yeah, that situation? Yeah, that's an important uh, distinction or an important question. Winning could mean something as simple as I nail you with just the right words to make it clear that I'm right and you're wrong and you've got no way out of it. And you either feel very guilty or very self-hating or ashamed, and I can walk away feeling like I'm okay. That's that's uh, winning in a horrible sort of way, but I think it happens all the time, and, and I've seen it all my life in, in people's fights. And, and often in these fights, there's not one person who needs to forgive. Usually enough is happening for everybody to apologize and forgive. You may not. I mean, a lot of people can't move past it. I think a lot of couples break up because of infidelity, because the partner who was cheated on just can't live with the image of the infidelity. You know, very often in infidelity, like anything else, the unfaithful person is not necessarily the only one to blame. You know, you take a situation where someone has been deprived of sex for months or years, that person's going to cheat. He's going to stray. That's what happens when, you know, you know, get your needs met in a relationship. People start straying, but especially over an important thing like sex, it's still horrible to be cheated on. You still would have rather, you know, been confronted. You played a part. I think one of the things that you're talking about that I think is very important is something that I call, so when did this start? In other words, it's easy to say you did this, not just about infidelity, but many hurts that people meet out to one another. And then the, the other partner says, it's true that I did that, but you do realize that you did that thing last week and we never talked about that. And then there's a sort of infinite regress where we go back a month and a year and 10 years and, and, and so on. So would one of the goals therapeutically be for both parties, in a sense, to be able to air out the timing of what they see is going on? No, I wouldn't. I don't think the timing is important. After the first Low, it's both people are responsible. Both people have acted something out. Both people have been uncreative in the way they respond to each other. Both people have been unfair. Both people have hurt each other. Both people have guilt-tripped each other by trying to claim that it all started with you. It doesn't matter where it started. You're both doing it now, or we're both doing it now. Let's just acknowledge that and move on. And one thing I find 
in, in couples work is that I get the complaint. Why is it that I always have to go first? Meaning, why do I have to apologize? Why do I have to acknowledge where I was wrong? Why do I have to acknowledge where I was insensitive? Why doesn't he do some of the acknowledge or she? And my, my feeling is everybody has to go first. We all have to go first. If it's going to, if, if something positive and creative is going to happen and we're going to get to a place of repair, I have to go first. I have to acknowledge what I've done that may have been hurtful or insensitive without a promise or a treaty being signed that says you're going to go second, but you're going to go. Maybe you won't go. Maybe you're not ready to go. Maybe you're not ready to go in the larger sense of having developed psychologically to the point where you understand the importance of, I still have to go. I still have to go and it can't be predicated on a promise from you that you're going to go also. And that's, that's the way repair starts. One person has to start it. One person has to take responsibility for his own or in what may have been an ongoing subterranean battle over the course of years. And when, when that happens, things loosen up and repair becomes possible. You said before that sometimes one of the parties is just not ready for the conversation or they're not ready to forgive or conversely to apologize. So that suggests that there's a certain timing for forgiveness, a kind of inchoate sense of when people are ready. There was a book that was written a number of years ago. It was quite a poignant book. It was by a woman, American woman named Terry Gents. And she talked about how she'd gone on a bike trip in Oregon, and she'd been severely attacked. And Ms. Jens was a Christian, and she felt that her tradition sort of pushed her into forgiving before she was emotionally or psychologically ready. So I wanted to ask you a series of questions in relation to that. Do you think that there is a kind of timing for forgiveness to really stick? Yeah, in a way. I think there's such a thing as premature forgiveness, which I think is inauthentic and worthless. And I think it's promoted by religious doctrine. You know, any, anyone who tells you you must forgive or you have to forgive or it's the only right way is to forgive is not taking into account your internal process, you know, who you, where you are psychologically. Someone might need to express and to feel a lot of anger before she's ready to forgive. And that anger is actually, could be seen as part of the process of forgiving itself. You have to go through the anger, and there's various things, and anger changes as it moves along. It doesn't necessarily stay exactly the same, and there may be within that anger some charity here and there toward the person who's wronged you. And this was a very you know major wrong, the one you bring up, and that may creep in, and that's a process of forgiving too, even though the the overall the envelope is one of fury. But at some point. She may be ready to let go and be willing to, let's say, understand where the, what, that, what that was all about and where it came from. But I don't think there's anyone on the planet who can tell her or anybody else, you must forgive. For me, that's a formula for just more damage. So it sounds like there's a, a kind of thin line between encouragement to forgive and an imperative to forgive. And the yeah. latter you're saying is, is damaging. Yeah. And well, even the encouragement can, can be ill-informed, you know, by, because the person is like an automatic and what's forgive type person. And that comes through, you know, that I, I don't care where you are or who you are or what you're about. All I'm thinking about right now is this doctrine that's in my head that forgiveness is always right. And that's why I'm encouraging you. The question of whether we can forgive other people and ourselves might be tied to the way we narrate the events of our lives. Dr. Zindel Siegel is a cognitive psychologist and the Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Mood Disorders at the University of Toronto. And Zindel is a leading voice in using mindfulness in the treatment of anxiety and depression. What interests him are the kinds of stories we tell ourselves about what happens to us. Can we move to a point in our lives where we construct a new narrative, one that's a bit more nuanced and less certain about who is right and who is wrong? And, well, basically accept that in every life, a certain amount of pain and distress will arise and that it's what we do next. That is the key. I asked into what he sees as some of the important ways in attaining self-forgiveness and in changing our stories. I mean, I think here's where uh, Judaism has a lot of value in terms of prescribing rituals 
and you know rituals like Shiva and all of these things that we're aware of are very, very helpful because they allow a, a demarcation of recognizing that something has happened to you and that one needs to go through a process. So it, it prevents a kind of hurrying into a false emotional resolution. And even before one might be ready for a ritual, I think it's important to recognize, and we know there's a lot of study of, of people who have been exposed to trauma, either severe or not so severe, that there is a way in which people first have to understand what's happened and also to understand how what's happened may have shifted their worldview to some degree, worldview of things are fair, worldview of if you're a good person, bad things won't happen to you, worldview of a random existential universe where things just happen and we are sort of, you know, flies uh, that get in the way and sometimes we get crushed. So in forgiveness, it's important that this type of work take place before someone is able to maybe move towards a ritualistic resolution or engagement with the possibility. And then I think there actually are benefits that come from forgiveness. One of the things that I've read that I think is helpful is the idea that forgiveness means that you give up the right to get even. But at the same time, you also allow yourself to be released from the hold that the event had on you. And even we know physiologically people who live with a kind of low-grade similar resentment have worse health outcomes, cardiovascular health, and other ways in which the body ends up taking the brunt of a lot of these negative emotions. I want to stay with that thought because one of the things that I've often noticed in religious understandings of forgiveness is that there almost seems to be a pressure that Judaism brings on you to be the good one right? Forgive them. It, an even bigger mistake, in my view, is to not call them to account in the first place. Mm -hmm. What I call a kind of martyr syndrome, where the person says, you know, you're really hurt by that person, but you think it's saintly to say, no, that's fine. Don't worry about it. And actually, that's counterindicated in Judaism. Judaism actually wants you, as you were alluding to, to enter the process to say, no, you hurt me, and to allow for that real earned forgiveness to happen, where they're aware of what they did, and you expect something from them, an apology, and that seems to me a, a more grounded way of going through it. But it means you have to feel your feelings, as you were saying, yeah, not run away from them. And I think the other piece that comes out of feeling your feelings is then you also have the capacity to set boundaries. Well, if, 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 if the forgiveness that is being requested is from someone who took advantage of you, there may be a way in which you can recognize that this happened, and in terms of preventing it from happening in the future— Maybe there's things that you can say are unacceptable or say are uh, not things that you're going to be willing to tolerate. There are ways in which it also allows you to protect yourself instead of feeling like the only option you have is to turn the other cheek repeatedly. Looking back on it, thinking about it, whether you think there are things that are unforgivable, that just cross a line where the idea of offering this person some kind of redemptive out is just unthinkable, or do you think that that's all subjective? to the very end. I think that it comes down to a choice of what people want to hold on to. And the best that a conversation or a ritual can provide is the idea for the person who has been injured that they can step away from the injury, develop a narrative around it, maybe hear regret or remorse on the other side. But there are ways in which for some people, I'm not saying this is necessarily adaptive, holding on to an injury, holding on to something that has been violated or betrayed, continues to serve them in different ways. And in that case, forgiveness sometimes isn't enough. Is one of the ways that it serves them to give them a sense of power that they can, let's say your spouse betrayed you, you'll never let them forgive it, you, you know, forget it. And so you can hold yourself up here because like you are the one who did that and don't you ever forget it. And that serves them. I mean, it becomes complicated. Some would say twisted. But there are ways in which these things continue to perpetuate the slight, even though the slight may have happened or the betrayal may have happened a long time ago. So it's kept alive. The real value and the potential for forgiveness is to close the chapter and walk away. I want to pick up on that by going back to something you said just a couple of minutes ago that I, I really resonated for me, which is that we develop narratives about our lives. It isn't just that things happen to us, mm -hmm. it's that we're, we're, humans are storytellers. And the stories that we tell the most are to ourselves about who we are, what's happened to us, heroes and villains in that narrative and so on. 
partly what it sounds like you're saying is that, excuse me, we have to reconstruct the narrative. Yeah. And that's not an easy thing to do when the narrative introduces elements of uncertainty, worry, danger, disappointment into it. So someone's in a car accident. It's not their fault. They're driving. And the next thing, they're in hospital. Why did this happen? The first tendency of ours as narrative creators is to find a reason. You blame yourself. You blame someone else. You didn't, you know, you weren't religiously observant or you, you know, you did, you watched pornography or something like some way in which the mind needs to have an explanation. And sometimes the explanations can be quite bizarre and far-fetched, but some people, I think, prefer to live with an explanation than to prefer to live in a kind of Sartrean, completely absurd universe where things just happen for no reason and people suffer. Would you say that forgiveness on some level is risk? In other words, to not forgive, to keep it static, to keep the narrative that you've been telling yourself your whole life is in a way safer. It keeps all the players exactly where they are. And forgiving kind of shakes up the mix. This person is no longer demonized in quite the same way. You may even begin to understand why they did what they did. And that's an act of emotional risk that maybe we're not always ready for. I definitely think that there is a way in which it's a a balancing act by staying locked into a certain view of yourself. There are certainties in terms of your relationships to others, what you can expect. But if you step out of that, you may benefit in some ways by letting go of a story or uh, letting go of a situation but you also don't know what's in store for you because you're less certain about how things are going to play out. For many people, the primary figures who need to be forgiven are parents, especially if we feel hurt by them in a vulnerable period of development in our lives. Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz is a rabbi and a leading social justice activist, as well as an author of several books. He spoke to me about the cycle of pain and forgiveness in his own life, triggered by his parents' divorce when he was a teenager. And I asked him whether it was possible to say, that the worst thing that ever happens to us might actually end up being one of the best things that ever happens to us, if it grants us a life-altering perspective and a newfound wisdom. There are so many levels to think about about such a personal question as a rabbi, as an activist, and just as a human being. On the rabbinic level, there are people who naturally will treat clergy, who will act like children in front of clergy and will act in a mean-spirited fashion. And so to continue to not burn out and to serve them, it really requires the humility of forgiving those things where there's not even an asking for forgiveness. In the activist world, movement building is very messy and people say a lot of silly things, a lot of hurtful things and burn bridges and the chance to be, once again be forgiving to, to rebuild those bridges. So that work is constant. On my personal journey, I think the moment that strikes me the most as being painful and yet ultimately conjunctive rather than disjunctive, something that was growth-oriented and connecting rather than disconnecting, was my parents' my parents' divorce as a teenager and feeling my world collapse as I knew it and feeling abandoned as I felt I lost my infrastructure, my community, my base of support. And looking back and seeing that that was the stimulus that really moved me to the search for community, the search for family, the search for rebuilding from a place of brokenness and feeling whole. And like any dissolving of a relationship or of a familial infrastructure, there's so much pain involved in that. And that pain has been really informative in my life, really instructive of the fragility of relationships, the fragility of families, the pain that can cause, be caused through such traumatic experiences. And so like any child who is the, who is the child of a divorce, there is the self-forgiveness that comes through that and also the forgiving of parents that comes through the break of the, of the family infrastructure. How old were you when your parents divorced? I think the separation was uh, around 17 and the divorce was around 18. So very formative, very tumultuous years right at the sort of back end of adolescence. You talked about self-forgiveness in that process. What would you think you would have to forgive yourself for regarding your parents' divorce? Yeah. So as a child, one can often feel in a divorce that they are somehow responsible. Of course, that's narcissistic and not true. 
but it is easy to feel like we are at fault when a family dissolves, that we were not good enough to hold the family together. And so it took a long uh, process and maturation to realize it wasn't about me at all, actually. Nonetheless, it is hard to remove childhood experiences like that from the psyche. And so I think there's an ongoing process of realizing that one can't fix problems in one's parents' marriage or in one's parents' character, and that's not even on us. And then when, you know, in becoming a parent oneself and seeing aspects of one parent, one's parents within themselves, the positive or the negative, continuing that teshuva process. And part of that is about growing beyond what we don't want to be and the families we don't want to build, but also about forgiving the self of realizing that there are parts of ourself we can't change necessarily. And so I think the self-forgiveness piece is a really big part of the broader forgiveness bit, because I think when we're really hard upon ourselves, we tend to be really hard on others. And so my favorite midah, my favorite character trait is hitzlamdut, a process of curiosity. And when we feel judgmental of the self and of the other, how do we flip that process of judgment into a process of curiosity? I notice myself hating myself again or feeling like I'm not worthy or not good enough. How do I go in there a little bit and say, I'm curious, where's that coming from? I'm curious, is this serving me well or not serving me well? Is that form of guilt and sort of self-loathing actually inspiring a humility and inspiring a growth? Or is this not serving me well? It's actually limiting my potential. You actually preempted me. You really articulated beautifully kind of keys or steps in the process of self-forgiveness. I'm wondering if you, did you end up forgiving your parents? You know, I think that in a, in a Freudian sense, there's a part of ourselves that will always be children. And it is hard to really transcend that, to ever view one's parents as just human beings because our relationship is so deeply attached as it should be. I mean, atta- I mean, when there's not attachment, we have foster children. We're, we're, our, our family fosters children who have been abused or neglected. And it's very scary when there's not an attachment because there's going to be emotional challenges that c- come with such a problem. But those of us who do have attachment and view God through the path of our parents because of that role they continue to play for us, I believe there can never be total forgiveness. There can never be total detachment. And that we continue to to some degree or another, feel blame for others for our own limitations. And I think a maturation is not blaming God, not blaming our parents, not blaming the government or society at large for who we are. There is an element of harm that others have caused us naturally, and yet there's an element of growing into responsibility that we are who we are. And so as I have moved towards that, yes, there no doubt has been a process of forgiveness. And also in coming to see that divorce as essential to who I am today, that I would not be who I want to be without it. It's hard to say that I'm grateful for it, but without a doubt, I would, it would have stunted my growth if I had not shaked, shaked at that moment, that formative moment for me to go out of my comfort zone and become something different. And so I feel really grateful for that. And I most certainly have forgiven my parents for the the really difficult part of my life that emerged from that. And I have forgiven them as I grow into the process of being a parent, grow into the process of seeing how much power I have as a parent, but also how much, how little control I have to some degree to, to who my children are, because they have their own personalities and natural dispositions. They have their schooling educational process. They have their own kind of divine providence that's in a part of who they are and seeing my power and also my limitations and seeing also my parents, the power they had and where it was used well and where it could have been used better, but also their own limitations. Yeah, I really find that very compelling. Uh, a friend of mine says that perfect parents are the ones who don't have any children. And I, I think you're, <laughs> you're, kind of, you're kind of referring to that. Robert Karen talked to me about the need precisely for parents to model for their children models of forgiveness and repair, because the ability to do that, or to fail to do that, will certainly lodge in the child's psyche and be formative for them when they reach adult life. The home life, the family, the early childhood experience. Do you think that one of the most powerful things that parents can model for their children is this art of forgiveness with each other? Do you think that that makes a powerful impression on children? 
Oh, very much. They do. I think what, what we learn from our parents by watching them relate to each other is profound. And parents who are good at repair, who uh, don't hold grudges, who don't simmer with resentment, who don't flip off nasty comments towards each other, they have a very different impact on the child. And if going to be late, he's going to be a more forgiving person. He's going to recognize that little hurts don't have to be made into major sources of combat and that um, things can be repaired, that it's not a tragedy if, they, if we have differences with each other, that love is more powerful than winning and anger and holding a grudge. And in a way, we can't really hide that. What, what I'm talking about is parents who don't model that kind of better behavior with each other, but then try and fake with their kids as if everything is okay when the actual model of it is not okay. Because kids seem to have an unerring sense. They can whiff it out of when there's an inconsistency between what's being preached to them vis-a-vis the way the parents are behaving. Right. It's an, I mean, the preaching can be a kind of gaslighting where the child is very confused for years. But the true model is still within the child. It's not forgotten. It's lived in relationships. And it might be very confusing. Where did I get this? My parents were so easy and forgiving with each other. But the, the truth is in the behavior of the child and then the grown child. The truth is there. And you can try to hide it all you want. But who you are is what comes through. So you're saying very explicitly that the way parents are with each other especially, and with their child, no amount of dissembling can change the fact that on some extremely powerful way, this seeps into the psyche of the child, resides there, and can manifest itself when that child becomes an adult. Yeah, that's beautifully put. That's, that, I do believe that. Dr. Alan Kaplan is a global expert in the treatment of eating disorders and a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. When I posed to Alan what I had suggested to Shmuley Yanklowitz about the worst event in one's life being the catalyst for positive change, he referred to the breakdown of his own marriage. Sure. I mean, the thing that stands out for me as most traumatic in my life was experiencing divorce. I'd been married for over 20 years and with three kids, and it really blindsided me. And it, it, it really forced me to prioritize the things in my life, literally forced, because suddenly... For periods of time, I was a single parent of three young kids, which I hadn't experienced before. But it certainly has led me to prioritize family, specifically my children, now my grandchildren, five of them, as the most important thing in my life. It has made me, for sure, a better parent, uh, and I think a better therapist in understanding it. That's true psychic pain to go through something like that. For me, uh, the pain was... The, indescribable having to experience that and the unspoken thing about divorce is you you don't just necessarily lose your spouse but you lose the wider community that goes along with friends I I, being married that long I didn't know a single person all of my friends were couples and some managed to stay keep in relationship with both of us and it was an amicable split but I don't want to give the impression it wasn't and some chose And so it disrupted my social network as well in a very significant way. It certainly has made me a better person. I don't think there's any question about it. And friends who have stayed with me along my life's journey have commented on that. Much more self-aware, much more uh, concerned about others. So it's made me more sensitive. I think it's made me more spiritual because, in fact, one of the things I did after I got divorced was to go to a, a, a retreat at a a Buddhist place, vegetarian Buddhist place. I felt I needed to get away, which for a week you weren't allowed to speak. And I was, went by myself and, you know, that's where I first discovered meditation. I I wasn't the kind of guy before that you, you would think of as meditating. And so it, it, it opened these aspects of my world. That's where you learned to meditate at the Buddhist retreat. I'm smiling inside because I'm thinking of your vocation and here you are, you went on what's called a talk fast for, for seven days, no, no intake yeah. or, or output in that way. So clearly there's been transformations for you. And, and I became more spiritual in my practice of Judaism. I changed my synagogue. I started reading about spirituality. I started seeking teachers who had that bent, including you. I mean, that's when I started going to your class at Shemayim. What do you look for now 
in terms of a Jewish experience. You've talked about how you changed your, your, your practice. Can you flesh that out for me? What does that look like? Yeah, I guess I, I'm more focused now on my relationship with my fellow man as opposed to my relationship with a God figure. Uh, so things where I feel I'm making a difference in terms of tikkun olam, which is a basic principle of Judaism, I, I, I tend to be attracted to that uh, as opposed to, let's say, studying the Torah more than I used to. It's so interesting to me to hear you talk, thinking about how you started this conversation and where we're ending it. And what I mean by that is somehow there's an encoded word that's coming to me that your Judaism has become softer. In other words, you grew up, at, it was very hard. Very. It was very hard. It was like, you know, punitive images and mistreatment and judgment and exile, in fact. And now as you've gotten older through pain and through clinical experience, the way you think about it is it's very relationship heavy. It's about a God you can relate to. It's about people that you can relate to. You are emphasizing the personal relationships. What I'm interested in here is that what I think you're providing for people is a model in which they can say, I don't have to be stuck in the same way that it's been for me. Just because my parents raised me in a certain way or the Judaism I was exposed to in school was a certain way doesn't mean that I'm forever condemned to live that. And you seem to be living proof of that. Would you say that's that's fair? Absolutely. My practice of Judaism today is unrecognizable from what I was brought up with. It was interesting when I was coming here because I I try to put on tefillin. Again, I don't do it because of some fear that I'm going to be struck by lightning. I do it because it's meaningful to me. Occasionally I'll miss. And I had forgotten to do it this morning. And I I was debating whether, well, you know, it's I'm, I'm a little, I'm going to come late and do I really, should I do it? I did it quickly, but it made me feel good. My living Jewishly colleague, Rabbi Yossi Saperman, concluded my series of conversations by talking to me about why apologies are not important to him and how the overarching issue at the bottom of everything is that life is short and finite. So do we want to remain stuck in crippling cycles of resentment and blame, or do we want to move forward? Yossi, in order to forgive somebody, do they have to apologize to you? No. You can just let it go? Sometimes. Almost always, actually. Oh. Yeah. You're a very good guy. No, I'm not good. I've learned that uh, I don't I have a short life and I you, you waste way too much time trying to get apologies. And even when you get them, they're not sincere. And if you have to force it, it feels let it go. And you always feel better eventually. And you get them out of your head. Oh, totally. Yeah. Because I can't get them out of my head is not a good way. Right. Right. OK. You asked me something in order to in order to move on from uh, a sin. Do you have to change yourself or does the other person have to change their attitude towards you? I mean, something I've done to somebody else? No, someone hurt you. Okay. Can, do you have to change in order to let that person go? I think so. Because if your expectation is that the outside world is going to conform to you, it won't. So if the usual thing is, yeah, I'll move on as soon as they, you know, get down on their knees and say how horrible they were. And that's not going to happen. So I have to change me in order to change the situation, which means I have to think to myself, sort of what you were talking about. I can't control anyone in this world but me, which is really the key thing. And that's in a way the core of what religion teaches. I can't control anything but me. So if we're going to move this situation forward, I have to be a different me. I have to be into a different place. It's interesting that when Maimonides talks about repentance, one of the things he talks about in terms of becoming a different person is changing your name, changing your location. And I think of these metaphorically, like change your name is like, I'm a new person now. I changed my identity. I'm not that guy who was like flying off the handle, getting angry when you did stuff to me. I'm a new guy now. So I definitely think it's changing yourself because making your life contingent on the other person's changes is a recipe for tragedy. So isn't it ironic that the person that hurts you most, if you actually forgive them, they've caused you to change theoretically, for the better. It's extraordinary. They've done me a favor, so to speak. So to speak, had that not happened, had they not been the 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 creator of misery, right? So it's almost, if in, a, in some weird way, we should be thanking them, hello, you really made a difference in my life. That is part of the mental exercise I go through. If it wasn't for you being so ridiculously douchey, I would have never had this opportunity. And by the way, that's how you deal with your parental. If it wasn't for the fact that you were who you were, I wouldn't be who I am for good. Or for bad. And with parents, it's much more present because they're both the source of a lot of uh, who you are. 
So I just want to say, yeah, it's a really cool idea that I learned years ago from an Israeli thinker named Mordechai Rotenberg. He's got this wonderful phrase. I hope to have a good path. And what's cool about I hope to have a good past is usually when terrible stuff happens to you, you sort of think of like this black hole. Like, I just got to move on. It's horrible. I, I don't want to think about it. I can't do anything with it. I'm just moving on. Like bad relationship, bad friendship. I hope to have a good past is you relook at it and it actually becomes a good thing for you. So it's, you know what? If I hadn't gone through that, I'm not the person I am now. If I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't have learned the things I needed to learn. So at the time when it happens, it's like the worst thing ever. And you, you curse your fate. And then it's so ironic. You were talking about this. Like years later, you're thinking, that person may have just done me the biggest favor I ever had in my life. Doesn't let them off the hook, by the way. Right. Because they're responsible for their behavior. Right. But for you, it could actually have been the redemptive moment. Like the worst thing that ever happened to you might be the redemptive moment. So I had a therapist who taught me two brilliant things. The worst thing that ever happened to you is probably the best thing that ever happened to you. And the only thing you should regret are the things you haven't done which is a big, big statement that needs a lot of unpacking, but it was so important to me because if you can put regret aside and you can put anger aside, well, guess what? You start coming into focus. Go ahead. You're I, I like what you said about the things not done because when people talk about Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, they often look backwards. It's like, oh, I'm repenting the thing I did, the mistake I made. And I always think it's about looking forwards. Like it's getting you in touch with the fact that you said before, who will live? Who will die? Short time, end point, unknown, get to it, right? I think it's all about urgency. It's about the idea of time passing. You don't know how much time you have. We're really lazy about that. You know, it's it's interesting. If you talk about Rosh Hashanah, you teach it to young people. It's, this is a hard one to get across. When you're 21, you're like, you're going to live forever. Like, if you talk to somebody who's 60, they it's like, yeah, I know. I can feel it. it but there's a small though. At, tw- at 60... You start to watch people burdened with their life's choices and they've never learned how to put them aside. You, you, you watch people who, whose kids are getting married and they have regrets about their relationships and they just have never, and it, and it keeps growing yeah. and growing like sacks of potatoes on your back. You watch people die weighed down by their stuff and you just say to them, you could have dealt with all of it. You could. I mean, I, I come across this all the time in the work I do. This Yom Kippur, perhaps consider someone you have had trouble forgiving in the past. Could you forgive them now, even if they show no awareness or ownership about what they have done? Will you still be able to forgive them? And is there one situation in your life that's waiting to be resolved that you've avoided dealing with in this past year or longer? How can you begin to address that? What would be your first move? I'm Elliot Malamud, and this has been Crossing the Sea. I invite you to check out previous episodes at www.livingjewishly.org. May we all gain a measure of atonement in the days and months ahead and create small but lasting changes on the road to redemption. Stay safe and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.